It's vital for us to be clear about the gospel. So in this series, A Great God Amazing Salvation, we're looking to the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul unpacks the gospel for us in detail. And he says the gospel is not some weak message that you would be ashamed about. Rather, it's the power of God for salvation. In the first eight chapters of Romans, we've looked into that gospel. Hopefully by now, you're starting to understand the gospel a bit better. And God's grace is starting to change you a bit deeper. Now, chances are, you also have some questions by now. And one question that I often hear is, if Jesus is the only way of salvation, what happens to those people who don't believe in Him? What happens to the people who have been living decent moral lives, who are devoted to their God, and they just don't believe in Jesus? What happens to them? Well, Paul actually answers a very similar question in chapters 9 to 11. By the time Paul wrote Romans, it had become clear that the makeup of the church was mostly Gentile people, non-Jewish people. The Jewish people were a relatively small minority in the Christian church. And so this was a huge theological problem for them. What happens to the rest of the Jews who don't believe in Jesus? Because the Jews were the people who had a long history with God. They received the promises of the Messiah and the salvation and the blessing. They received the law of God and they sought to obey the laws of God. In other words, in that day, they were the religious moral people. They were the decent people of the day. What happens to them if they just don't believe in Jesus? Are they also lost? So their problem was similar to our problem today. And that's what Paul answers in chapters 9 to 11. Now last week, we looked into chapter 9 and we saw some clues to that question in terms of God's sovereignty. Today in chapter 10, we're going to see more clues in terms of human factors, in terms of our human responsibility. Here's chapter 10 and read through that lens. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. 
in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And who, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? But I asked, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul says our questions related to God's plan of salvation must take into account human factors, human responsibilities. God gives us grace and we have to receive that grace. And therefore, our questions has to take into account the responsibility of every human heart. Now, how then do we start to resolve that question that we have? Well, what I want to focus on today is not so much on the responsibility of non-Christians, that's up to them. What I want to focus on is on our responsibility as Christians. What's our role in God's plan of salvation? How are we part of resolving that question that we have? So today, let's talk about evangelism and grace. And in this passage, there's three things we can talk about in terms of evangelism. There's the need for evangelism, the task of evangelism, and the heart of evangelism. So let's talk about the need, the task, and the heart. First of all, the need for evangelism. There is a growing sentiment especially in the West, but even here, that evangelism is not necessary. If you look at the broader culture, people have become more and more skeptical with people sharing their faith, with people trying to convert you, right? It's put along the same lines as a pyramid scheme. Some would go so far as to say that evangelism is something oppressive. It's someone imposing their beliefs on you. So, let's be clear here. Is evangelism really necessary? What if the person is living a decent life? He's living an upright, moral life, and he's devoted to his God. Should we go out of our way to tell them about Jesus and pray for their conversion? Should we do that? Paul's answer is yes, it's absolutely necessary. See, in this passage, who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jewish people. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Well, wait a minute. Who are the Jewish people? Remember, the Jewish people, they 
knew the true God. They followed the true God. They were trying to obey the law of God. And yet Paul says, I'm still praying that they may be saved. So it's not enough. In fact, Paul says they have a zeal for God. And zeal, you know, it's good. It's admirable. But zeal is meaningless without according to knowledge. It has to be grounded on the truth. Zeal and sincerity and devotion are not enough. As they say, you can be sincere, but you can be sincerely mistaken. For example, think of Nazi Germany. Now, many of the Nazis were genuinely devoted to the cause of the German people. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, right? You might even say that's good. You're passionate for your community. But what went wrong? They believed in lies rather than the truth. And so their zeal became dangerous. It became evil. Or put it this way, perhaps you're passionate about seeing the Philippines succeed as a community, as a country, as a people. And so naturally, you want to elect the best candidate to be our president. Now, great, but if you believe in fake news instead of facts, well, then that zeal becomes harmful to the Filipino people. So sincerity, zeal, devotion, that's not enough. It has to be grounded on the truth. And by the way, Paul knows what he's talking about. Remember, before he became a Christian, he, was, he had an intense zeal for God. So intense, in fact, that he made it his life mission to hunt down Christians because he thought that was what God wanted. But without realizing it, he was actually putting himself against God. So we need to know the truth. We need to know God's plan. Well, what is God's plan for salvation? Verse 3, it says, we should submit to God's righteousness. Well, what, what does that mean? Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, God's plan of salvation doesn't depend on us obeying the law because we can't. You're not saved by obeying the law. You're not even saved by zeal for God. It's not enough. You're saved by believing in Jesus Christ. See, God's plan to save us does not, is not through our own righteousness, which is perpetually failing, but through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is God's plan of salvation. And people need to know the truth. Everyone does. It doesn't matter who they are. These people might very well be far better people than us. There are many people like that. They may be wiser. They may be more humble. They may be more selfless, more loving, more, more self-sacrificing for others. But they still need to know the truth. They need Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says we're supposed to preach the gospel. See, this familiar passage says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him if they have not heard about him? How will they hear if someone does not preach to them? See, 
Who's the one sending who here? Jesus is sending the whole church to preach the good news of God's salvation. He's sending every Christian to tell people about the good news. Now, the word preaching means to herald. You know what herald is? The, the role of a herald was vital before there was social media and CNN and mass communications. The role of a herald was vital. See, the only way your city would ever hear about an important news is when a herald came to their city and the herald would go to where the people were and he would announce and tell the people about this important news that had just happened. And that's essentially what evangelism is. Jesus is sending us to be a herald, to be his heralds. And he's assigned to each of us a city to go to and tell the people in our cities about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our role. We are heralds and we're sent to preach. Now, doesn't, that doesn't mean you need to have a stage and preach like, like I'm doing it right now. It can be as simple as a conversation with friends over coffee and you tell them about the good news. You know, there's this popular phrase that says, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. And the idea there is as in sharing the gospel, your actions are more important than your words. Now that's a fair point, but let's stop to think about that. What is the gospel? Because the gospel is not primarily a, a way of life. It's not. It's about what God has done, not what you have to do. As they say, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. See, if the gospel is good advice about how to live your life, then you share the gospel by your actions. You, you live it out you model it for other people, then people will see you and understand the gospel. But the gospel is not good advice about how to live your life. The gospel is good news. It's primarily about what has already happened, what God has done, and therefore how we should respond. And so actions will never be enough. We need words. A herald is sent by his master to use words and speak out the news. And so as heralds, we're supposed to talk it out with people and discuss it and, and explain it to them, right? That's the only way people will ever know about God's plan of salvation that he has made available for all in Jesus Christ. That's why evangelism is absolutely necessary. It's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So that's the need for evangelism. And number two, let's talk about the task. What about the task of evangelism? What's involved in it? Well, we can say a lot of things about that, but just in this passage, we can draw out two things about the task. Evangelism is hard and evangelism is easy. You heard me right. <laughs> it's both hard and easy. 
Now let me explain. On the one hand, evangelism is hard because Jesus offends people. See, who's Paul talking about in this passage? He talks about a stumbling stone, about a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. See, all through the New Testament, we're told that God has placed Jesus to be a stone, and he's the cornerstone to his entire plan. Again and again, all through the New Testament, we're told Jesus is at the very center of God's plan, not just for salvation, but even for our future. And so the main task of evangelism is to tell people about Jesus. And therefore, the main question of evangelism is, well, what are you going to do with this Jesus? Are you going to submit to God's plan and make Jesus the center of your life as well and build your life upon him? Or are you going to put him aside and stumble over him? And that's what evangelism is. And see, that's not easy. That's hard because people are going to be offended by what Jesus is trying to say. See, Jesus is said to be a rock of offense. People are going to get offended by Jesus. When they hear past the lovely words of Jesus and they hear the difficult things Jesus is saying, people get offended. You know why? Notice, Paul says the Jews stumbled over Jesus, over the stumbling stone. Why? Because they were trying to pursue a righteousness that was based on works. Now, what does that mean? If you've been in this series, you've probably heard it several times already. What does it mean to pursue a righteousness based on works? Well, we can best understand that down there in verse 3. It says, the Jews were seeking to establish their own righteousness. In other words, you're trying to save yourself by your own efforts. You rely on yourself rather than God. And so you do good things for your salvation. You go to church, you read your Bibles, you attend Bible studies, you donate money to the poor, you try not to hurt anyone, and you say to yourself, well, I'm not such a bad person. Look at all these things I'm doing. I'm fundamentally a good person, you know? What are you doing? You're trying to establish your own righteousness. But see, what does Jesus say? Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. That's not enough. You're so bad, so hopeless, that I had to come down from heaven and die for you. You can't do it. I had to do it. That's what Jesus says. And that's a huge problem for many people. You know why? Because nobody likes to be told that they are not good enough, that they can never be good enough. It's a, it's a huge blow to our egos. It, 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 it confronts our self-righteousness and it offends. But see, that's the task of evangelism. That's a necessary part of the gospel. The cross of Christ and what it means in confronting our self-righteousness. The only way people will ever have a meaningful encounter with the true Jesus is when they've seen the cross and what it means. See, 
people will never embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior unless, unless they reach a point where they say, I can no longer trust in myself and in my own righteousness. I'm, I can't be my own Lord. I can't be my own Savior. I need Jesus to be that Savior for me. See, without reaching that point, people will never see why they need Jesus. They'll say, I don't, I don't need him right now. I don't see the relevance for me right now. They'll reject Jesus, or perhaps even worse, they'll gladly accept Jesus, but Jesus is not a Savior and Lord. He's taken in as a supplement to their lives. So Jesus is more like a vitamin supplement rather than a heart transplant. So Jesus is seen as their helper, their consultant, their guide, but not their savior. Jesus is taken in like an inspiration, but is not Lord. And so you, you, you might pay him your respects, but you don't kneel down in worship. And that won't do. That's not the gospel. That's not what people need. People need to be confronted with their own self-righteousness and how it fails, how their zeal fails, how their devotion to God fails, how their obedience and their good, good works fail. People need to be confronted with that so that they can go to Christ and find the salvation that they need. And that's offensive to a lot of people. That is. That's why it's often harder for many religious, decent people to embrace the gospel. Because it's hard to see why I need Jesus if I've always been such a decent person. On the other hand, people who have made a mess of their lives already know that they cannot do it. They're often more ready to embrace Jesus. See, the prodigal son runs to the father, but the older son refuses to go in because he's offended. His pride is offended. And so on the one hand, that means evangelism is hard because necessarily it offends people. But on the other hand, evangelism is easy, utterly easy because what's the good news? The good news is truly the most wonderful good news of all. And it's for all people regardless of who you are, regardless of what they've done. For one thing, Paul says the gospel is easily accessible to all, easily. See, he says, who will ascend into heaven? Who will descend into the abyss? Paul is actually quoting Moses from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Moses there was talking to the Israelites. He was saying, God has already done the impossible for you. He's rescued you from Egypt. God has drawn near to save you. He's even given you the law so that you can follow God and receive his blessings. You don't have to ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss just to find salvation and blessing. God has come near you to give you, to save you, to bless you. And so the point there is God purely by his grace has come to save and bless 
and establish a relationship with you. And see, what Paul does here is he's applying the same concept to Jesus Christ, to the gospel. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, God also did a far more impossible thing and rescued us from sin and death. And therefore, we don't have to ascend into heaven. We don't have to descend into the abyss just to find salvation, just to find God's blessings. No, we don't have to travel to Mecca anymore. We don't have to go through several life cycles to earn good karma. We don't have to obey the Bible before we can meet Jesus Christ. We don't have to get our lives together before we receive grace. No, the word is near you. Jesus has come. He's done everything for us purely by his grace to save us, to bless us, to establish a relationship with us, to love us. That's why the gospel is easily accessible for anyone. All one has to do is to believe in their heart and confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, he's my savior. That's all it requires. And you're saved, you're blessed, you're secure, you're in God's loving hands. So the gospel is easily accessible to all, and also the gospel is equally accessible to all. Paul goes on to say, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now in other passages, Paul also says there's no distinction between man and woman, slave or free. Why? Because God was giving Jesus for all people. There's no pecking order to who can receive Jesus first. No, it's for all people. In Jesus Christ, the righteousness that God gives is for both the moral and the immoral. The riches of God is for both the dirt poor and the filthy rich. The freedom of God is for both the slave and the free. The headship of Christ is for both the man and the woman. The citizenship of heaven is for both the citizen and the refugee. Jesus is for all people, and the good news is truly good news equally for the person at the very bottom of the social ladder and the person at the very top. It's equally for all. It's truly, truly wonderful news for all all. And so listen, evangelism is easy once you truly understand just how good, just how wonderful it is because the gospel is truly the most beautiful, wonderful news of all. There's nothing to be ashamed about it. Nothing. It's beautiful. And see, sometimes people will refuse the gospel. You know why? It's not because it's too hard. Sometimes people reject the gospel because it sounds too good to be true. It's too wonderful. People can't seem to accept the wonder of God's grace. C.S. Lewis says that we're like little children playing in the mud puddle. And our father comes along and says he's going to take us to the beach, to the wonderful beach. But we've never seen a beach. We can't imagine what a beach looks like. And this, our father is saying something that sounds too good to be true. So we refuse 
and we stay in our mud. Evangelism is essentially telling people about the beach. We've seen it. We've been there. It's truly wonderful. It's true. That's what evangelism is. Our task is to be a herald and to present the whole gospel, both the offensiveness of the cross and yet the utter sheer wonder of His grace. That's the task of evangelism. Well then, as we go about our task, what should be our heart? What's the heart of evangelism? What should be our motive, our attitudes, our perspectives? Well, it seems to me the Apostle Paul would be a great model to follow. And in this passage, we see his heart for evangelism. See, three times here, he shows his heart. First, he says in chapter 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So he's thinking about his Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus, and his heart is deeply moved. He grieves for their unbelief. Then he says here in chapter 10, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It's his intense desire. He's praying for them. And in chapter 11, he says, I myself am an Israelite. See, what's, what's he doing here? The heart of evangelism is you're identifying with people where they are. You're identifying with people where they are. And, and it's, it's incredible what Paul shows here. Because try reading through the book of Acts. And you'll see just how much suffering the Jews as a people have caused Paul. He's beaten. He's stoned. They chase him city to city to city. And yet, what does Paul do? Paul refuses to hate them. Paul refuses to demonize them or to abandon them. Paul refuses that. Instead, what does he do? He says, I myself am a Jew. I'm like them. I identify with them. They're just like me. And Paul can even say good things about them. He says, they have a zeal for God. See? There's no sneering. There's no sense of superiority. There's no condescension there. He identifies with them. And that's the real heart of evangelism. It's when you see people and you see yourself in them. You see people who are just like you, people who are hurting, people who are grieving, people who are going through a hard time in life, people who are struggling with their sins, and people who are facing death. They're people just like you, and you, and you see that. And therefore, just like Paul, our hearts identify with them, so that even though people mock us, or people ridicule us, or people hurt us, people snub us, our hearts must refuse to hate them. Our hearts must refuse to abandon them, to withdraw from them. Our hearts refuse that because we identify with them. We draw near, our hearts draw near to where they are. That's the real heart of evangelism. And without that, there, there won't be any genuine concern for them. We will be unsympathetic people. And you see, if that happens, at best, what do we do? We force ourselves to evangelize. We force ourselves to do that. And our evangelism becomes very mechanical. That's best. At worst, we become patronizing and disdainful to people. 
And people will notice that. There's no hiding that. People can see through someone who's just faking niceness to sell something. People can see through that. And that's not the real heart of evangelism. The real heart of evangelism is a genuine, deep concern. You identify with people. You have a solidarity with these people. You see yourself in them. That's the real heart of evangelism. And at the same time, it's also a heart that is utterly realistic. See, Paul here is talking about the Jews. And why do they not believe? Paul says, have they not heard? Yes, they have. They've heard the gospel. Did they not understand? Paul is saying, of course they understand. Moses, the law, and the prophets, they have these things to help them understand the gospel. So they've heard, they've understood the gospel. Why do they not believe? Paul says the only explanation left is that they simply do not want to believe. They don't want to believe because they don't want to believe. Sometimes people refuse the gospel simply because they don't want the gospel. They want something else. And see, we need to be utterly realistic about that reality, about the reality of the human heart and its hardness and its sinfulness. We need to be realistic about that. And we need to be realistic about our own responsibilities. What's the limits? What the, what's the scope of our responsibilities? It's to be a herald because really, that's all we can do. We can't open minds. We can't change hearts. We can only tell. We can convince. We can do our best to persuade and, and to witness and to back it up with our life. We can pray for them. We can love them. We can serve them. But we can never force people. We should never pressure people into Jesus Christ. So you don't go, for example, to a poor community and you hang out a bread and say, believe in Christ before I give you this bread. Never do that. That is herald malpractice. We should be utterly realistic about what is our responsibility as heralds and what is their responsibility to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. And so that's a heart of evangelism. It's a genuine concern that identifies with people. And yet, we're not there to coerce. We're not enforcers. We're witnesses. We're salt and light. But we're not there to force people to twist their arms. No, we're heralds. That's the heart of evangelism. And see, if you maintain that tension of being genuinely concerned yet not forcing them, there's going to be a lot of grief for you. There's going to be a lot of, uh, of, of sorrow in your hearts. There's going to be unceasing prayer for them. There's going to be a lot of disappointments and heartbreaks as you deeply care for these people. How, then, can we have that heart and maintain that heart to sustain that kind of heart for people? The key to developing and maintaining that heart in you is to see God's heart for you. To be the kind of evangelist that God wants, we need to see the kind of evangelist that God is. See, how did God draw you to Christ? How did God draw you to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, 
Paul gives us a few things here. In verse 20, he says, I have been found, this is God speaking to the Gentile people. He says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. In other words, that's us. We were not looking for Jesus. We, we didn't even think about him. But God, the evangelist, drew near us. He showed himself to us. He, he, he spoke to us about the gospel. And he drew us near to himself. See, how did that happen? How did God show himself? Ultimately, that happened when God came in the person of Christ to be a man just like us. That's how far God went to identify with us. He became a man. And he became a man who was hurt, who grieved. And even though people mocked Jesus, people hurt Jesus, people snubbed Jesus, and ultimately they killed Jesus, Jesus refused to hate us. Jesus refused to abandon us or to withdraw himself from us. Jesus drew near and he identified with us. He became a man who was hurt like us, who grieved like us, who faced death like us. That's how far he went to identify with us and to genuinely be concerned for us. And in verse 21, it says, God says to Israel now, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God is like a parent here who's pleading with his child to return. But you can sense God's dismay here, do you not? Because Israel is a child that is dismissive, resistant, disrespectful, hurtful to their parent. And that child is not just Israel. That child is just like me. That child is just like you. And that child is the person who's next to you who also needs Jesus. And yet, what does God do? What does God, as the evangelist, what does he do? He waits. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't say, off be with you then. He waits with patience. He waits with grief. He waits with longing for us to return to him. He doesn't twist our arms. He doesn't force us. He waits. He waits with love. He holds out his arms just as Jesus held out his arms on the cross so that God's grace can come down right near you. That is God's heart for you. And that is God's heart for the person next to you who also needs God and his salvation in Jesus Christ. Look at God's heart for you. Look at God's heart for that person next to you. And your heart will slowly grow and be molded to become like him. So that you can go out and tell the world about the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. You did not abandon us. You drew near. You endured suffering, persecution, ridicule, death, our sins. You endured 
and you identify with us in Jesus Christ. So Lord, forgive us for when we were like that little child, resistant and dismissive, stubbornly insisting on our mud puddles when you've been wanting to take us to your presence, to a far more wonderful reality in Jesus Christ. Father, even now in our sins, when we fall back to sin, we do that. Forgive us. Lord, help us go deeper. Drive us deeper into your love, into the wonder of your grace, so that we may be changed even more. Lord, we pray that our hearts would become more like yours, so that we may go out there and be your heralds wherever you place us, to whatever city or circles that you have assigned to us. Give us courage, give us wisdom, give us the words to say, give us the opportunities, so that we may go out and be your heralds, your witnesses, Lord, and tell people about Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us that responsibility to be ministers of reconciliation on behalf of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who sent us out and who goes with us. In his name we pray, amen. This concludes our online worship service. I pray that you are blessed and have a good week ahead. God bless you.